Welcome to tape number one of Notes on the Apocalypse by David Steele. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a pre-printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. And now to the reading of Notes on the Apocalypse by David Steele, which we pray you find to be a great blessing and which we hope draws you near to the Lord Jesus Christ. Notes on the Apocalypse by David Steele pastor of the Reformed Presbyterian Congregation, Philadelphia, 1870, reading a short letter to the Reverend John Cunningham, missionary from the Reformed Presbyterian Church to the Jews in London, England. Reverend and very dear friend and brother, although we are separated upon the wall, one far from the other, we are not altogether precluded from mutual salutation. Placed by our master on two hemispheres between which the electric current bears frequent tidings, our respective positions are advantageous for noting the events of providence. These constitute the signs of the times and are the counterpart of prophecy. Prophecy and providence reflect light upon each other and both are helpful to the interpretation of each. But he alone who is the wonderful counselor can cause us to understand either. In submitting the following work to the public, I venture to do so under your auspices, if not under the sanction of your name. And I embrace the present occasion, Reverend Sir, to bear willing testimony to your acknowledged scholarship, your profound erudition, especially in natural science and philology. I do also cheer and joyfully recognize you as a public witness and at the present time of general defection as an official and consistent witness in the British Isles for the integrity of our coveted reformation, that reformation which in its fuller development is destined to secure the rights of God and man in reorganized society. Such, I believe, to be the one of the cheering lessons which may be learned by Christ's witnesses from searching the apocalypse that you, dear sir, may be long preserved, sustained, and comforted by the providence and grace of the Most High amid all your self-sacrifice, privation, and reproach which you endure for the truth's sake is the prayer of your beloved brother in covenant bonds, David Steele. Philadelphia, February 1st, 1870. Preface. The Apocalypse is one of the most sublime and wonderful dramatic exhibitions presented for human contemplation. Internal evidence concurs with an authentic history in demonstrating to the devout and intelligent reader its divine origin. God, angels, and men are the principal actors. Men's natural curiosity may find entertainment in this book, and from no higher principle, many have doubtless been prompted to attempt a discovery of its mysterious contents. What is true, however, of supernatural revelation in general is equally true of this book. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. To the right understanding of the Apocalypse, so far as the prophetical parts of it are contemplated, the following prerequisites would seem to be indispensable. 1. A competent knowledge of what may be termed the fundamental doctrines of the Gospel, such as the unity of the divine nature, the distinction of persons in the Godhead, the atonement and intercession of Christ, the total depravity and renovation of human nature, 
the resurrection and final retribution, etc. 2. Acquaintance with symbolic language as the only language common to all men since the confusion of tongues. 3. Familiarity with the typical dispensation from which most of the symbols are taken. 4. Freedom from all political bias. No expositor of the apocalypse appears to have possessed all these qualifications, however few and simple. The most learned and judicious interpreters of this book have been divines of Britain and of the United States. After so many laborers employed in this harvest, the reader may ask, what remains to be gleaned? To this inquiry, it may be sufficient to remind the devout Christian that as the apocalypse is the end of the Bible, so the harvest is the end of the world, and during the intermediate time the Lord of the harvest is sending forth laborers. Prophecy has engaged the attention and occupied the thoughts of the writer more or less for the last 30 years. He has consulted the views of most of the distinguished and approved interpreters of the book of Revelation, among whom the following are named, vis-a-vis Mede, M-E-D-E, Sir Isaac and Bishop Newton, Durham, Fleming, Gill, Whitaker, Kett, Galloway, Faber, Scott, Mason, McLeod, and many others, from all whose labors he has derived much instruction, and from all of whom he has been obliged in important points to descend. The immediate occasion of this undertaking was the urgent request of the people of his charge that the substance of a course of lectures delivered in ordinary Sabbath ministrations might be put into a more permanent form for their future edification. In the earliest centuries of the Christian era, so wild, enthusiastic, and corrupt were the sentiments of some millenarians that this book ceased in great measure to be read or studied, and even its divine authority came to be questioned by many learned and pious men. As the dark ages of popery resulted from neglect of the sacred scriptures in general, so even among the first reformers the apocalypse was viewed with suspicion as to its claim to inspiration. It is probable that many of the unlearned will hear with wonder and doubt the assertion that even the great reformer Luther rejected the apocalypse as being no part of the sacred canon. The same judgment he formed of the epistle by James. With characteristic boldness he wrote as follows, quote, The epistle of James hath nothing evangelical in it. I do not consider it the writings of an apostle at all. It ascribes justification to works in direct contradiction to Paul and all the other sacred writers. With respect to the revelation of John, I state what I feel. For more than one reason, I cannot deem this book either apostolic or prophetical, and it is sufficient reason for me not to esteem it highly that Christ is neither taught nor known in it. From the Life of Martin Luther, pages 173 to 174, London, 1855. Luther, this is still in the footnote, Luther afterwards became convinced of his error. Back to the text. Such was the estimation in which this distinguished reformer held two inspired books of the New Testament at the dawn of the Reformation. How great the increase of scriptural light since his day. The grand design of this book, as declared by its divine author, is to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass, to testify these things in the churches, to make known beforehand to those styled his witnesses the certainty of the great apostasy, the rise, reign, and overthrow of the Antichrist, that when it came to pass they might believe and exemplify before the world the patience and the faith of the saints. During that protracted period the witnesses could neither know their duty nor sustain their allotted trials without these necessary instructions. From the position of the witnessing church in the wilderness during the whole time of Antichrist's reign, which is also the position of the Apostle John when viewing in vision the woman upon the beast, chapter 17, verse 3, that appears to be the only advantageous position from which to view the actors in this wonderful scene. And since few have voluntarily gone forth to Christ without the camp bearing his reproach or submitted to wear the mourning garments of sackcloth 
It is not at all surprising that the apocalypse, emphatically a revelation, should continue to be to many a sealed book. But on the other hand, blessed is he that readeth, and that they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein. As this work is intended for the instruction and edification of the unlearned, rather than for the entertainment of the learned, words of foreign extract are used as seldom as possible. Practical remarks and reflections are rarely introduced. The principal aims being simply to ascertain and present to the reader the mind of the Holy Spirit. How far this object has been accomplished is, of course, left to the judgment of the honest inquirer. The reader, however, informing his judgment of the value of these notes, may be reminded of that inspired rule in searching the scriptures, comparing scriptural things with script, excuse me, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. To assist them in the application of this divine rule, many chapters and verses are quoted from other parts of the Bible, but especially within the Apocalypse itself, that by concentrating the various rays upon particular texts or symbols, their intrinsic light may be rendered more luminous. Thus the interpretation given, if correct, may be confirmed and illustrated. Notes on the Apocalypse The heavens and the earth did not make themselves. The material universe furnishes to the intelligent creature a visible demonstration of the eternal power and Godhead of its author. Besides, a sense of deity is essential to humanity, and a supernatural revelation is not necessary to convince rational beings that there is a God. Man is a dependent being in common with all other creatures, and all creatures depend upon a first cause. That cause is God. Dependent as a creature, man may know something of the natural perfections of his maker, and possessing a conscience which implies accountability to a superior, he may know, he must know, something of the moral attributes of God. In view of these positions, we may account for the fact, too often overlooked by the reader of the Bible, that the Holy Spirit directed the first of all historians to begin his narratively so abruptly. Assuming that the reader is already assured of God's being, Moses proceeds at once to account for the origination of the material universe. In simple narrative, he writes, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Thus, God's being and the eternity of his being are assumed as known by the first inspired penman, a fact or principle not to be disputed. True, the, be the being of God has been questioned, but only by fools, brutish people, who, by their atheistical suggestions, have proclaimed to their, fellow, to their fellows their brutish folly. Psalm 14.6, Psalm 44, verses 8 and 9. Excuse me, 94, verses 8 and 9. As the Bible takes for granted that mankind have a previous revelation in their own physical and moral constitution, in the visible heavens and earth, the same is true of the last book of the Bible, the Apocalypse. It assumes that the reader has some competent knowledge of the preceding books of the sacred scriptures. The reader is supposed to be acquainted with the patriarchal and mosaic dispensations of the covenant of grace. Moreover, the moral law, as inculcated in the Old Testament, the Levitical priesthood and ministry as being shadows of good things to come, the doctrine according to godliness taught in the Gospels and epistles of the New Testament are all taken for granted and supposed to be received with a divine faith by all who would profit from this last book of the sacred canon. It is further assumed in the Apocalypse that the humbler inquire into the mind of the Holy Spirit has a knowledge of ancient history of the character and destiny of Egypt, Babylon, etc. And finally, it is requisite that the successful inquirer into the mind of God be acquainted with the language of symbols, and above all, that he be resolved with the inspired writer John to take a position with the mystic woman in the wilderness. With these few preliminaries, we proceed. Chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, 
to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass, and he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. Verses 1-3 to Here our divine mediator appears in the continued exercise of his prophetical office in his estate of exaltation. While present with his disciples on earth, he told them that he had many things to say to them, but they could not hear or bear them then. John 16:12 Upon his ascension, he fulfilled his own and his Father's promise in sending the Holy Spirit to guide them into all truth, bring all things to their remembrance, and show them things to come. Verse 13. The fulfillment of this promise we have in the whole of the New Testament, doctrines, facts, and predictions. Jesus said, Of mine own self I can do nothing. Verse 30. The same is true of his teachings as is his works. The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself. Chapter 14, verse 10. In all that Jesus began both to do and to teach, Acts 1, 1, he was instructed by his Father. These things are all plainly implied in the first verse. Indeed, the official actings of the three persons on the Godhead had been frequently taught by Christ during the time of his personal ministry and they are more fully and frequently recorded by the beloved disciple than by any other evangelist in that gospel which still bears this apostle's name. Thus it appears that although this book is called a revelation of Jesus Christ, he is not the ultimate author. It is a revelation which God gave unto him. By God here we are understand the person of the Father. The reader is thus conducted to the divine origin of all supernatural revelations, the eternal purpose of God. Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2. The object of the whole Bible in the evolvement of the divine economy of man's redemption appears to be the unfolding of the ineffable mystery of the Trinity and displaying the perfections of the Godhead to his own glory as the highest and last end. The channel through which the divine will comes to the church is exhibited in the beginning of this book, originating with God the Father, passing to the mediator, communicated to a holy angel, by his ministry it is made known to John who reveals it to the church. How beautiful the order here, how wonderful and condescending on the part of God. Although we commonly and justly designate the whole church Bible by the name Revelation, yet we are to consider that this book is so called by way of eminence. Doubtless it is so styled by its divine author because it reveals events which were then future and which could not be discovered by human sagacity. But this holds equally true of other parts of the scriptures, especially those parts which are prophetical. It may be that this book is called Apocalypse because of its opposition which it was to encounter from Antichrist, as also because of its singular and intended use to a particular portion of professing Christians, as on the one hand the Romish church and too many who protest against her encroachments prohibit or discourage the disciples of Christ from reading this book. So, on the other hand, it has been of singular use to others in strengthening their faith and ministering to their comfort. John bare record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. A question arises here. What is the difference, if any, between the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ? Or is there any distinction intended by the Holy Spirit? Most readers, as well as expositors, view these expressions as identical. We shall meet with them or their equivalent frequently hereafter, and it may be proper at the outset to inquire a little into this familiar phraseology. See chapters 1, 9 of Revelation, 6, 9, 12, 11, and 17, 20, verse 4, etc. 
Recognizing the inspired rule of interpretation, comparing spiritual things with spiritual, we refer to Psalm 78, verse 5, where testimony and law are obviously distinguished. The same distinction will be found in Isaiah 8, 16, and 20. The prophet refers the reader to two tests of doctrine and practice. First, the law. But as the spouse of Christ is unable, in her perplexity, to apply the law to the present case in a manner satisfactory to herself, she is directed by her Lord, Song of Solomon 1.8, to go forth by the footsteps of the flock. That is, search and ascertain how the disciples applied the law in similar circumstances and imitate their approved example. This is a rule recognized and often inculcated in the New Testament, Hebrews 6.12. The inspired penman in Psalm 78, verse 5, refers the covenant transaction at Mount Sinai, where the law was exhibited as an appendix to the covenant of grace added to the promise, Galatians 3.19. The reader will find this whole matter set before him, perhaps to his surprise and delight, in Exodus 20, verses 1 to 17. The Lord Jehovah is the God, Elohim, of his people. How shall they know that he is their God? By the law. No, for that is a rule to all men. They know by the testimony as distinct from the law. Testimony consists of facts. God's people knew that he was their God because he brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. This was the doing of the Lord, the testimony of Jesus Christ. And so it is an important and precious truth to us at the present day. The preface to the Ten Commandments teaches us that God is the Lord Jehovah and our God. This great historical fact is the controlling motive to acceptable obedience to the moral law. To this, among other truths of the gospel, every faithful minister will bear witness with the Apostle John. John also bore witness to all things that he saw, as presented to him in a succession of visions to the end of this book, in view of some of which he wondered with great admiration, Revelation 17.6. In the third verse, there is a blessing pronounced on all such as hear, read, and keep those things which are written in the words of this prophecy. A mere reading and hearing of the apocalypse will not secure the blessing. It is suspended on the keeping. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. Chapter 22, verse 7. The divine and compassionate author of this prophecy, who knoweth the end from the beginning, foresaw the violent and ignorant opposition, even to the reading of it, which would be encountered by those for whose special direction and comfort it was given. While the man of sin would attempt to deprive the church of the light of the Bible in general, the great Antichrist would join him in special hostility to this book. The judgment of the former is that the Bible in the hands of the people will generate heresies of the latter. The apocalypse is so hard to understand as to be unintelligible, a revelation and yet unintelligible. This is very nearly a contradiction. Such sentiments betray a rebellion against the authority and a reflection upon the wisdom and beneficence of God. All Christians acknowledge, as Peter says of the writings of Paul, that in this book are some things dark and hard to be understood. But there have been always and now are some disciples who do not subscribe to the teaching of most expositors of this book that their actual fulfillment alone will interpret these predictions. Doubtless it was in view of such discouragements that our Lord prefixed and repeated the special blessing here. And this promised blessing of the Master himself is sufficient to countervail all the discouragements and hostilities of the adversary's throne in the way of the reader and expositor, Moses endured as having respect unto the recompense of the reward. Let us copy his example. He is faithful that promised. Let the pious reader therefore disregard the counsel to omit the reading of this book in, fam in family worship, as we have sometimes heard, whether it be tendered by papist, prelate, 
or Presbyterian because it is directly contrary to the express command of Christ, John 5.39, and because by following such counsel he would forfeit the special blessing here promised. Verses 4 through 6. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to whom be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Verses 4 through 6. Here we have the customary salutation addressed to the churches of Asia, minor. Many other churches have been organized in other parts of the earth at this date, approximately A.D. 96. But the special reason why John saluted these seven and addressed an epistle to each would seem to be his vicinity to them in the place of his present sojourning, and probably his personal acquaintance with them in the exercise of his ministry among them. Verse 11. His prayer for these churches is substantially the same as that prefixed to most of Paul's epistles. Grace and peace are inseparable to the divine arrangement. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. Isaiah 57, verse 21. The solitary pilgrim in his place of banishment, contemplating the Abrahamic covenant and realizing that grace and that peace in which he desires his fellow disciples to share, sets before us the threefold source whence these divine influences flow. First, from him which is and which was and which is to come, a description of God the Father whose personal subsistence has priority in the Godhead and who occupies the like priority in voluntary relationship and economic standing. From the Father personally, as the representative of Trinity, we have seen in verse 1, this book emanated, and now from the same we are taught that grace and peace come to fallen man. Second, John's prayer here differs from Paul's usual form in the beginning of his epistles. For Paul omits the Holy Spirit commonly saying, Grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, as in Galatians 1.3. In this last book of Scripture, we have the co-equal three introduced as cooperating in the work of man's redemption. Thus our attention is directed to the seven spirits which are before the throne, by which we are to understand the Holy Ghost in his essential equality with God the Father but in the place of sub official subordination. The Holy Spirit is one personally, but seven in his manifold gifts and graces, with special reference to the seven churches. And whereas the divine spirit, in the order of his personal subsistence and operation, is third, here he occupies the second place in the order of revelation. Third, the special reason for reserving the notice of our Savior to the last place is doubtless that the beloved disciple may take occasion to leave on record an expression of his admiration of the mediator's person, one of whom name, whose names is wonderful, Isaiah 9.6, and that he might exemplify the ruling principle of his own heart, we love him because he first loved us, 1 John 4.19. The Apostle dwells upon the personal glory of Emmanuel, contemplating him in his threefold office of prophet, priest, and king. He is the faithful witness in his prophetical office. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him, John 1.18, who, before Pontius Pilate, witnessed a good confession, John 18.37. He is the first begotten of the dead. He died unto sin once as an expiatory sacrifice to atone for the guilt of an elect world. Being a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, he ever liveth to make intercession. Death hath no more dominion over him, as it had over Lazarus and many others who came out of the graves after his resurrection. Matthew 27, 52, and 53. Among all, he has the preeminence, Colossians 1, 18. 
He is the Prince of the Kings of the Earth. There is not in the sacred volume a title of our Redeemer more full or expressive than this on his headship or royal office. A prince is of royal parentage. Such is the understanding of mankind in all civilized nations. Joseph in Egypt typified in part the kingly office of Christ, and Solomon on the throne of Israel partially typified him in his dominion. But as Balaam foretold that he should be higher than Agog, Numbers 24-7, so we may say he is higher than Joseph, a greater than Solomon is here. Pharaoh said unto Joseph, Thou shalt be over my house, and according unto thy word shall all my people be ruled. Only in the throne will I be greater than thou. When the father says to the son, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever, Psalm 45, 6, this is consistent with accepting him that did put all things under him, 1 Corinthians 15:27. Although we are not warranted to say with some, The Father is the fountain of the Godhead, we may warrantably and boldly say, The Father is the fountain of authority, John 6:38. The dominion of the mediator is universal, reaching from the roofless heaven to the bottomless hell. It is comfortable to the disciples to know this in anticipation of the rise and reign of Antichrist. He is, by the appointment of the Father, head over all things, Ephesians 1.22, able to save to the uttermost all that come unto God by him, to consume with the spirit of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming that wicked, the man of sin, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 8. In view of the personal dignity and mediatorial dominion of Christ, the Apostle gives expression to his admiration and wonder at the amazing love and condescension displayed by him on behalf of himself and all others on whom that love was fixed from everlasting and whose guilt and pollution were taken away by the atoning and cleansing blood of the Lamb. To these saving benefits is to be added the honor to which the redeemed are advanced as kings and priests, a royal priesthood. The living head is a priest unto his throne, Zechariah 6.13, and all the members are assimilated to him, 1 Peter 2.5 and 9. This ends side one. Please turn the tape over and continue listening on side two. Thank you. Verse 7. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they shall all also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. Verse 7. How animated the language, sublime the conception, and awe-inspiring the sentiment here. Time is annihilated, the end is seen from the beginning, and all eyes are directed to the sovereign judge of the world as he comes in majesty to fix the final destiny of all the children of Adam. These have constituted only two classes since the world began. Every eye shall see him, but the eye will affect the heart very differently. The hearts of some with holy Job will be filled with joy unspeakable, Job 19:26 and 27. But others with mercenary Balaam will be inspired with terror and dismay, Numbers 24:17. Of them that pierced him, who shall be able to abide his indignation? Judas, Caiaphas, Herod, and his men of war, Pontius Pilate, and all who have consented to the counsel and deed of them must appear before his judgment seat. All kindreds of the earth, covering all the combinations of Antichrist during the definite period of 1260 years, shall wail because of him. Revelation 14, verses 10 and 11. Assured of the equity of Messiah's judgment, the apostle, in the exercise of like precious faith with all them that believe, subjoins his heart's hearty assent. Even so, amen. So let all thine enemies perish, O Lord. Doubtless the design of the Holy Spirit in this verse is to furnish grounds of encouragement to those who were to be engaged in the protracted conflict with the powers of darkness foreshadowed in the prophecy of this book. Verse 8, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Verse 8, the divine person to whom the apostle directs the doxology in the sixth verse 
is introduced in the eighth. That is, the Lord Christ. He claims eternity and omnipotence. He describes himself here in the very words which in the fourth verse are descriptive of the eternal subsistence of the person of the Father, Alpha and Omega. The first and last letters of the Greek alphabet are explained in the words, the beginning and the ending. This language is not to be understood as expressing or defining the duration of the Godhead, Godhead only, but it points also to the divine purpose and providence. To the same purpose speaks our Redeemer under the name of wisdom. The Lord, the Father, possessed me in the beginning, head or purpose of his way before his works of old. Proverbs 8.22 In joint counsel with the Father are the wheels of time began to move before, excuse me, the wheels of time began to move, and being almighty to execute the purposes of God, he is perfectly qualified to act as the final judge of the world. And in the great and last day, every tongue must confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father, Philippians 2.11. For to this end Christ both died and rose and revived that he might be Lord both of the dead and living, Romans 14 verse 9 God is judge himself Psalm 50 verse 6 verse 9 I John who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ again the inspired writer addresses the Christians in Asia acquainting them very briefly and simply with his present local situation not so much to move their sympathy with him as to express his unabated affection for them. I am your brother and companion in tribulation. Although the like afflictions were accomplished in his brethren, the devil was permitted to cast only some of them into prison. But it is remarkable that John utters not a word, much less manifests any resentment against the persecutor. He was in the isle that is called Patmos, but he's does not say who sent him there. Historians tell us that he was banished by Domitian, the Roman emperor. Others say by Nero, but the former is more probable. This island is proverbially, proverbially barren. It is situated among a number of islands in the Aegean Sea, a point of the Mediterranean running northward between Europe and Asia, and not very remote from most of the churches here addressed. The ground of controversy between John and his persecutors was the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Of these he bare record, verse 2. This, says most expositors, was the cause of John's banishment. This unguarded language confounds the difference between a cause and an occasion. John had given no cause of banishment to his enemies. The true cause of their hostility was their hatred of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. For these John contended earnestly as Jude joined in verse 3 of Jude. Just as Paul and others were bold in their God to speak the gospel of God with much contention, 1 Thessalonians 2, 2. We have here the standing ground of strife between the believer and the infidel, between Christ and Belial, between the church and the world. There is a divine hand interposed all along in this warfare, and the conflict will terminate only in the extermination of one of the parties. Genesis 3.15 and Revelation 20.10 Verse 10 I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. The beloved disciple had often tasted the good word of God while the bosom companion of Christ in the time of his ministry on earth. His heart burned within him, Luke 24:32. Especially had this been his happy experience on the Holy Sabbath. Now that his condition is solitary, being by violence driven out from the inheritance of the Lord, 1 Samuel 26, verse 19, his gracious master favors him with a special visit. Did he not say to his disciples while he was yet with them, I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you, John 14:18 The comforter was promised to supply the want of the savior's body bodily presence verse um, 16 excuse me 
and now John is in the Spirit, and it is the Lord's Day, the Christian Sabbath. We may well suppose this disciple never was happier. No, not when he was leaning on Jesus' bosom. He would not now envy the emperor or any of his persecutors in all their outward peace and prosperity. He was in ecstasy. Whether in the body or out of body, he could not tell, but his soul was susceptible of the impressions of Christ's love and of the intimations of his sovereign will. Shall I hide from Abraham the things which I do? Genesis 17, 17. Surely the Lord God will do nothing. Excuse me, that's Genesis 18, verse 17. Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto his servants the prophets. Amos 3, 7. John does not boast as Balaam falling into a trance, but having his eyes open. Yet he heard and saw as distinctly and clearly as if his perceptions had come through the medium of his bodily ears and eyes. He heard behind him a great voice as of a trumpet, not to alarm, but to engage attention. Verse 11, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamus, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. Christ speaks, asserting his eternity, and consequently his equality with the Father. This book, being written in the Greek language, our Savior names and appropriates to himself the first and last letters of the alphabet in that language, and gives the interpretation, the first and the last, as in verse 8. John is directed to write and send to the seven churches all that is contained in this last book of the Bible. The churches are named here, and in the second and third chapters they are addressed severally in a letter to each. It may be noted that besides the general commission to preach the gospel to every creature, apostles had a special call to write, and sometimes a prohibition, write not, chapter 10, verse 4. Many of the most learned and godly divines whom we would consider best qualified have never left any writings for the instruction of posterity, while others less qualified either in respect of literature or piety or not at all qualified have filled the world with books without a special call from Christ. John 20, 30, and 31, and 21, verse 25. Verses 12 to 16. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paths with a golden girdle. His head and his hair were white as wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. His attention being arrested, the apostle turned to see the voice, that is, the person from whom the voice came. A glorious vision was presented to his view, Seven golden candlesticks, or lamp bearers, in allusion to the golden candlesticks with the seven lamps as placed in the tabernacle. Exodus 25, verses 31 to 40. In the midst of the candlesticks appeared one like unto the Son of Man, the mediator clothed in in sacerdotal garments, supplying oil for the light after the example of Aaron and his sons. Exodus 27, verses 20 and 21. The garment may signify his mediatorial righteousness, the golden girdle, the preciousness of his love, his head and his hairs like white wool, his purity and eternity, his eyes as a flame of fire, his omniscience, by which he searches the reins and heart and sees the end from the beginning, his feet like undefined brass, the stability of his appointments and the excellency of his providential dispensation, his voice the irresistible energy of his word to quicken, terrify, or destroy at his pleasure. John 5.25, Hebrews 12.26. 
The sharp two-edged sword will represent his awful justice against the impenitent who resist his righteous authority. With the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. Isaiah 11.4 and Luke 19.27 His countenance as the sun shining in his strength disclosed to the beloved disciples such splendor as to overwhelm him. The like display of divine majesty was insupportable to Saul of Tarsus when on his way to Damascus. Acts 26.13 Excuse me. Acts 26.13 To the workers of iniquity, our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12.29 It is a certain truth. The vengeance of the gospel is weightier, weightier than the vengeance of the law. Hebrews 10.28 and 31 Let us therefore fear. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth, and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the king, excuse me, and have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou seen, which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Verses 17 to 20 of Revelation 1. We have the effect of the vision upon the, upon the beloved disciple. He who had leaned on Christ's bosom at supper, and who had seen his master transfigured on the holy mount, was now utterly overwhelmed with the effulgence of his glory. John fell at his feet as dead. So it was with Daniel, a man greatly beloved. Daniel 10, verses 4 through 8. But the compassionate Savior dispelled his fears, as in all similar cases, making known to his astonished servant his supreme deity and real humanity as the first and the last, who died for the sins and was raised again for the justification of his people. Romans 4.25 He is alive forevermore. Become the firstfruits of them that slept. 1 Corinthians 15.20 He dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. Romans 6, verse 9. And so complete is his victory over the king of terrors, the last enemy of the believer, that he hath the keys, keys of hell and of death. He has the key of the bottomless pit. Revelation 20, verse 1. Having triumphed over principalities and powers, making a show of them openly. Colossians 2:15. Whether Christ used the word, Amen, to ratify the truth of his immortality, or whether this is an expression by John of his joyful acquiescence in that truth, is not material. We know on satisfactory evidence that our Lord is a prophet and king, as well as a priest, after the power of an endless life. Hebrews 7.16 and Romans 14 verse 9. John is next commanded to write, First, the things which thou, excuse me, first, the things which he had seen, that is, the description of the foregoing vision. Second, the things which are, that is, the actual condition of the church, as delineated in the diverse characters of the seven churches addressed, as in the next two chapters. Third, the things which shall be hereafter, that is, the prophetical part of the book from the beginning of the fourth chapter to the close as containing the prospective history of the church and of the nations, as she was to be affected by them, or they by her, till the consummation of all things. This is the division of the book made by the divine author himself, and it is a natural and intelligible one. All attempts of learned and pious men by other divisions to render this mysterious part of the Bible more clear to the unlearned reader tend only to display the ingenuity of the writers, not to say their temerity, while they darken counsel by words without knowledge. Such artificial divisions are as unfounded in the apprehension of sober expositors as the attempts of impious Arians and others to turn the historical narrative of the creation and fall of man into an allegory. The meaning of the seven stars and seven candlesticks is then explained to John. 
the word are is used in a figurative sense and not to be taken literally. It means here, symbolize, represent, or signify. It is to be interpreted in the same sense as the following places of sacred scripture. It is the Lord's Passover, Exodus 12:11. That rock was Christ, 1 Corinthians 10:4. This is my body, Matthew 26:26. 26, 26. None but a papist will have any difficulty here, or perhaps a Lutheran. Chapter 2. Some commentators, among whom may be mentioned the learned Dr. Gill, a leading anti-pedal Baptist, which is someone uh, who does not believe in infant baptism, minister of England, have imagined that the seven epistles addressed to the Asiatic churches contain a mystical prophecy of the church general covering the whole period of our history from the apostolic age till the end of the world according to this fancy for it is nothing more than a fancy the church in Smyrna will represent the church's condition in the second stage of our history when Arianism prevailed and the Laodicean must represent her last and so her worst condition How will this harmonize with the 20th chapter, where she appears in triumph over all her anti-Christian foes? This is given as a specimen of the unbridled fancy and licentious imagination with which even good men may be tempted to approach the reading and interpreting of this important and instructive part of God's word. But Peter informs us that some persons in his time rested those parts of Paul's writings which were dark and hard to be understood, and this was not the worst of their conduct, for they treated the other scriptures also in the same reckless and irreverent manner, which were neither dark nor hard to be understood. Second Peter 3.16 These epistles are no more mystical or prophetical than those of the Apostle Paul. They are simply and properly descriptive, although like other all other epistles, they are applicable to the church general in all ages and equally suited to the case of individuals, as is clear in the close of each. If any man have an ear, let him hear. Chapter 2, verse 1 through 7. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember wherefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. This first epistle, addressed to the church in Ephesus, comes from the Lord Jesus, who holds the stars in his right hand, who gives commission to the ministry, gives them authority as his ambassadors to negotiate with mankind, communicates to them the light which they diffuse in the world, sustains them in their respective spheres, and controls them as they move in their orbits. He walks in the midst of the candlesticks as the sun in the system of nature, trimming and snuffing the lamps that they may burn more clearly. This is the second epistle sent from Christ to the church of Ephesus. Paul, who is thought to have planted this church, Acts 28, verse 19, excuse me, 18, verse 19, has written to those Christians some 30 years before while he was a prisoner in Rome, Ephesus 1, 4 and 6, 20. Paul and John were nothing more than Christ's amunescence, the pen of a ready writer, Psalm 45, 1, 1 Corinthians 3, 7. The angel of the church is at once a symbolic and collective name, including also the idea of representation, 
not a pope or any other prelatic personage. No doubt, in our Savior's estimation, the saints take precedence here of the bishops, overseers, and deacons, as they do in Philippians 1, 1, Ephesians 4, 8-12. All ecclesiastical officers are Christ's gift to the church, but the object or recipient of the gift is more valued than the gift. And just here is the point where prelates do greatly err not knowing the scriptures. They have arrogated to themselves the honorary title of clergy, and for the sake of distinction, and to give plausibility to their ambitious pretensions, call the membership of the church the laity, contrary to the express decision of the unerring spirit. Peter cautions the elders that they be not as lords over God's heritage, lot, clergy, where it is obvious that the body of the people, as distinguished from their rulers, are denominated the clergy. Moreover, it is evident to any unbiased reader that the membership, and not a bishop only, are addressed by our Lord in these epistles, as when he says, Some of you, verse 10. Hence, it may be inferred that there is no proof in these epistles on which to erect the anti-Christian hierarchy of diocesan prelacy, and consequently that ecclesiastical government is by divine right lodged in the hands of a plurality of presbyters. Christ notices what is commendable before he administers reproof. I know thy works. There seems to be an incompatibility between the patients commended and not being able to bear them which were evil. But patience under persecution or any other providential dispensation is perfectly consistent with an enlightened zeal against error and immorality. Indeed, the two graces, graces, patience and zeal, are inseparable are inseparable in themselves and as connected with all other graces of the Holy Spirit. There were such in the primitive church who claimed to be apostles and who, upon trial, were discovered to be impostors. Paul, in the exercise of the miraculous gift of discerning of spirits, could, without presbyterial examination of witnesses, personally detect false apostles, deceitful workers, in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 11.13. But John was not at Ephesus, and therefore the ordinary rulers are approved by Christ for the faithful exercise of discipline. Persons who falsify the doctrines and corrupt the order and ordinances of divine appointment are the worst of liars, and having been by competent authority found to be such, they may be so-called without breach of charity. When discipline is neglected or relaxed, error and tyranny soon enter with confusion in every evil work. But when false teachers have gained followers and influence in the church, the friends of truth and order will be in danger of yielding to the pressure. They are liable to become weary and faint in their minds, Hebrews 12.3. But zeal for their master's honor will animate them to contend for the faith so as to secure his approbation. It is remarkable that so much labor, patience, zeal should be found in this church while chargeable with having fallen from first love. Habits contracted in the fervor of early affection to Christ may continue to influence an individual or a church when the fervency of affection is sensibly abated. This state of feeling is exercised this feeling excuse me, this state of feeling the exercised Christian will confess and lament. Nothing but repentance and reformation in such a case will procure the approbation and restore the favor of Christ. Continued impenitence is threatened with removing the candlestick, the gospel, ministry, and ordinances. This ends the reading of tape number one. Please go to the next tape in the series and continue listening. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources as well as SWRB's complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, 
T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. This book, Notes on the Apocalypse by David Steele, is also available from Stillwater's Revival Books in softcover format at a discount in our A to Z author listing. And please, don't forget to look over the 62 CDs that make up our Reformation and Puritan Bookshelf CD sets if you visit our website at swrb.com as these CDs are a great way to build a major reform library at a fraction of the cost of the printed book.